Most of you will recall that when I first came here, July 2020, we started a series on Malachi and went through Malachi. This morning I would like you to, to turn to Malachi in terms of the reminder, which is also important with respect to the message this morning, the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3, reading verses 1 through 4. Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Listen carefully to the holy, infallible word of God. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can adore the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah in Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and in former years. Now, if you would turn over to Mark's gospel. This morning, we are just going to read one verse, one verse. Chapter 11, verse 11, 11, 11. He entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we are now seeing that Christ has arrived, Jerusalem. We know from your word what beholds him. We ask that we would also see in terms of this text what is occurring not only with respect to Jerusalem, but Christ's relationship to the temple. Help us to understand the greatness of this, the importance of this for our everyday faith. In Christ's name, amen. As Jesus, the King of Kings, enters Jerusalem, where does he go? To the palace of the Roman governor? To the symbol and place of Roman authority? Not at all. 
He goes to the Jewish temple. Why not go straight to Pilate and confront him about what the Roman governor Herod Antipas did to John the Baptist, his forerunner, the last Old Testament prophet? Why is he not pursuing social and political justice on behalf of the person whom God sovereignly designed to baptize him and inaugurate his ministry of good news of the kingdom of God. Yes, Mark notes that immediately he goes into the temple. Please take a second and notice the pattern in Christ's activities here in Mark's gospel. In chapter 11, verse 11, he goes to the temple. And then Mark mentions in chapter 11, verses 15 through 19, that he goes into the temple again. The second time is when Christ confronts the money changers and the Jewish leadership who have turned God's house of prayer into a den of robbers. Now notice that between these two occasions of Jesus and the temple is the incident of Christ cursing the fig tree. Chapter 11, verses 12 through 14. We'll be looking at that next Lord's Day. Plus, after the incident with the money changers in the temple, Christ provides the interpretation about the present withered fig tree. Chapter 11, verses 20 through 26. Keep going. Go down, if you wish, to 1127. Christ and those with him are back in the temple, debating with the Jewish leadership. That takes place from 11.27 through chapter 12, verse 12. Are you seeing with eyes of faith the pattern of Mark's narrative for your personal journey with your Savior? The temple, Christ looks around. The fig tree, Christ curses. The temple, Christ disrupts, erupts in righteous anger. Fig tree, the interpretation of the withered tree. Temple, debating with the Jewish leaders. Temple, fig tree, temple, fig tree, temple. As you look at the evolving rotation of our coming messages, there are at least two themes I would like you to keep in mind as we proceed in these coming messages. First, the issue of worshiping God in the Old Testament with respect to the temple. And secondly, the constant indictment in Old Testament revelation that continues in the New Testament church. Judgment, judgment begins with the household of God, as Peter mentions in his first epistle.
However, as we begin this morning to look at this brief passage, it is important for us to understand further how Mark has led us on Christ's pilgrimage to Jerusalem and to the temple. As we, note, as we noted in a previous message, and as we noted on other occasions in our journey through Mark, the term way, the term way is very important for Mark. It depicts the direction of Christ's church itself, Christ himself's path to Jerusalem and his God-ordained destiny of death and resurrection for the redemption of his people. The term way has deep historical and religious significance for our lives as Christ entered Jerusalem as it is reported there in chapter 11, 1 through 11. This morning we want to grasp the significance of Mark's last use of the term way in his gospel as Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. Mark's last use of the term is in 11.8. The passage should read, and many spread their cloaks on the way, is the Greek, not road. They are spreading their cloaks on the way as Jesus goes into Jerusalem. Once Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, Mark does, does not use the term way anymore in his gospel. Jesus' wilderness pilgrimage has reached its destination. But here is an interesting point that has not been obvious so far throughout Mark's gospel. The way not only applies to Jerusalem, but it also is the way to the temple. Notice once again our text this morning. Chapter 11, verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and, and went into the temple. Hold on to that point. Very important. From the very beginning of his gospel, Mark has our eyes, our ears, our mind, and our heart set on Jerusalem as Christ's destination. Yes, Mark's direction prophesied by Isaiah and Malachi is immediately incorporated by Mark right off the bat in this gospel in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. It sets the whole tone of where the gospel is going to go. You remember those words that are coming from the mixture of Mark putting together Isaiah and Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your what way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Indeed, Mark's gospel begins 
with the Old Testament prophetic fulfillment of John the Baptist preparing the way for the ministry of Christ, the Lord who will continuously make his way to Jerusalem. It is said that Mark's gospel is a gospel of motion, of motion, of movement in which Mark draws our attention in a literary manner using the term way for Christ's eventual landing in Jerusalem. It especially comes to our attention in the second section of his gospel, beginning with chapter 8, verse 27, and at the end, chapter 10, verse 52. In that section, Mark uses the term way seven times, four in the 10th chapter, verse 17, verse 32, verse 46, and verse 52. Watch the movement, the movement just in the 10th chapter. On the way to Jerusalem, we learn about how the cost of discipleship is too much for the wealthy young man. Verse 17 and following. Then in verse 32, Jesus is walking ahead of his disciples on the way and they lay behind him in fear. Jesus underlines the fact that he will be killed by the Gentiles and rise from the dead, verse 32 and following. However, when we come to Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus, he is sitting along the way. Again, is the literal Greek not roadside as in the ESV, verse 46. Now note the transition as Christ gives this extraordinary figure sight when he was blind. Jesus tells him to go on his way because of his faith in the object of saving faith. Who's the object of his saving faith? Jesus Christ, who has enabled him to now see. And as one who is able to see with saving faith in Christ, he does not hesitate. He follows Jesus on Christ's way to Jerusalem as a true follower and disciple of his Redeemer. Are you seeing the movement of Christ to stimulate faith in your life? In your life. First, for the wealthy young man, the way costs too much. Does it cost too much for you to follow Christ? For the disciples, the way is characterized by fear. Is that your life? Thirdly, but for Bartimaeus, 
the way is sitting waiting for the son of David. Remember, he's the first one that references son of David in Mark's gospel, waiting for the son of David who will mount him up like eagle wings so that he can walk and not faint, run and not be weary, for the way of redemption has become visible and his possession. Ask yourself. That's the question you must be asking this morning. Are you, are you the same faith in your life? Is that faith the faith that you see in Bartimaeus in the text? Do you possess saving faith that does not hesitate to follow Jesus? Is your faith expressed daily as dying unto sin and living in redeeming righteousness? Well, Bartimaeus will not appear in the rest of Mark's gospel. He doesn't have to appear. He is the case of saving faith in Mark's gospel, period, period. Hence, we are ready to move to the next segment where our attention and faith must be fastened, must be fastened upon Christ's entrance on the way into Jerusalem, paved with cloaks and palms. And as we enter, the way has entered, has ended. We have arrived at Christ's destination. We have arrived now at Jerusalem, 11, 8, chapter 11, verse 8. But to repeat, we have, not, we have not only arrived in Jerusalem, but we have arrived with Jesus also going immediately to the temple. Both Jerusalem and the temple reflect Old Testament prophecy about the final coming of God's kingdom that is coming in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Well, let us first hear in terms of those two components, Jerusalem and the temple, let us first give our attention to Jerusalem and we will look at that through more carefully the prophecy of Isaiah. Anytime we read the Old Testament prophets, there is always the problem as to what applies to Christ's initial coming in his earthly ministry and what applies to the final consummation when Christ returns at his second coming. I am sure when you read the prophets, you're trying to figure that out <laughs> as you read them. What applies to Christ's first coming? What is consummation? Furthermore, 
What also makes the interpretations of the prophets more complex for each of us is the dual aspect of Christ coming in terms of judgment and also Christ coming with respect to redemption and blessing. How are we to read that when we read the prophets? Isaiah spells out a present theme that we have been seeing in Mark throughout Mark's gospel so far. Christ's ministry has been characterized by the theme of Israel, including we have seen his disciples of being blind, being deaf to the gospel message of the good news found in his kingdom. Israel is blind and deaf to the righteousness of God's law. They are people who steal, rob. They are trapped in their own prison of sin. They have refused to walk in the obedience of God's law. God has even exposed the heat, the fire of his, ang- of his anger in judgment against such ones who are blind and deaf to God's sacred word. We read about that in Isaiah 42 this morning. And now in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the judgment The judgment of Christ comes upon those who will not repent and believe. After all, according to Mark's gospel, what has the Son of Man found in the days of his earthly ministry? He has found works and hearts of iniquity who are quick to shed innocent blood. Their road shows no justice. It is not straight. But it is crooked where there is no peace. They love the darkness and the gloom. They love their lying words. They growl and moan in their sin, turning their back upon the truth of God's word. I've just summarized Isaiah 59, 7 through 19. But amid such darkness... Amid such darkness, Isaiah prophesies hope for Jerusalem in the imagery of Zion. Chapter 60, verses 1 through 3, very familiar to you. Christ has arrived, your light has come, the glory of the Lord has ridden upon a colt into the city. He alone possesses the beautiful feet that brings the good news of happiness. He is the servant of peace and salvation. He has arrived to loosen the bonds of sin around the necks that have been held his people captive. Jesus Christ is the Redeemer who alone is the Holy One, Creator of Israel, their King who, saw, who saves a fallen humanity. That summarizes Jerusalem in terms of judgment and the coming of Christ according to the eyes in the prophecy of Isaiah. Let us turn to the temple now. 
moving from Isaiah's prophecy about Jerusalem, let us look at the priests and the temple in Malachi. In Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, all the way through chapter 2, verse 9, the focus is upon the disobedient priests who have broken the covenant of Levi in terms of that institution in the midst of Israel. Yes, <laughs> they have come. They come and you and despise God's name. They offer polluted bread and animals on God's sacred altar of sacrifice. They offer such defiled offerings that they would not even offer those offerings to a pagan God. Against God's covenant with Levi, the priestly line offers blemished sacrifices when God's word and law demands that the Levites only receive unblemished offerings from the children of Israel. Hence, God says that unless those priests repent, very seriously, one of the most graphic passages in all of Scripture, I used to have to tell my students in high school, this is God's word. They would say, where is it in God's word? Well, here it is. It's pretty graphic. If these priests do not repent, God will spread dung over their faces and take them out to the dunghill outside the camp, totally outside the presence of God and into his judgment. Yes, such priests have turned aside from the what, Malachi 2.8, from the what, the way, the way. Malachi 2.8. Instead of burning and offering sacrifices that bring reconciliation between sinners and a holy God, they cause Israel to stumble and have corrupted the priestly covenant. On the other hand, on the other hand, the prophecy of hope follows this sharp and decisive judgment by God. God will keep his covenant of priesthood despite those detestable priests there in Malachi's day. He will be sending a true priest who is in awe of God's name. Life in peace will embody this person. True instruction and knowledge will be upon his lips. He will walk in righteousness. His action as a priest will turn many from sin since he will be the messenger of God's sacred word as teacher and priest. Oh, people of God, lift up your hearts this morning and hear the good news of God's word to Malachi that marks the fulfillment, the fulfillment of Mark's text this morning. Are you listening with ears that hear and eyes that see? Is the faith we found in Bartimaeus 
firmly in your heart. And I encourage you, as a congregation united here this morning, I encourage you together as the united body of the Lord Jesus Christ to confess, to confess, Hosanna, Hosanna. Remember what that means? God saves now. God saves now. In your heart, these prophetic words from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger. Who is that at that point? That's John the Baptist. And he will prepare what? The way before me. And the Lord, who is that? Jesus Christ, whom you seek, will suddenly come where? Does Malachi say? To his temple. And the messenger of the covenant whom you delight, behold, he is coming. Congregation, the day has come. The day has come. Matthew 11, 11 is the fulfillment of Malachi 3, 1. There it is. Malachi goes on to record there, as you recall from our reading. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? Verse 2 of chapter 3 of Malachi. Now look closely at Mark 11, 11. Mark is the only gospel in the New Testament that records this particular incident of the temple with Christ. Mark continues to accent the loneliness of Christ's reception throughout Mark's gospel. Now watch. Jesus goes into the temple. What does the text say? And looked around at everything. Looked around at everything. Jesus is observing the whole environment. He is casing the place. He's checking it out. He's critically analyzing the priestly and human activity in the temple. The Greek here gives us the understanding that Jesus, see the richness of this in terms of the deep thought of Christ. Jesus is deep, being deeply affected, deeply affected by what he is seeing here. Are you making the connection here with Malachi chapter 3, 2? Christ is practically and prophetically acting out the question, who can endure the day of his coming? 
And who can stand when he appears? There he stands in the temple, pictured by himself, observing the activity of the temple. Remember the entry crowd this very day? The entry crowd going into Jerusalem is gone. They're gone. Already the dispersion of the crowd is evident. So in view of the lateness of the day, Jesus takes his disciples who are alone left back out to Bethany. He has seen enough. He has seen enough for another day when he returns inside Jerusalem and enters the temple. You keep that in mind when you come to verse 15 of Mark 11. Christ's fulfillment of his three offices should be self-evident before your eyes. The royal son of David has ridden as the king of kings upon a colt, a donkey into the city of David, to the boisterous, rejoicing crowd, a colt in which Christ absolutely prophesied perfectly as to how the two disciples would find the coat. Now the priest prophesied in Malachi is about to purify the sons of Levi upon the cross. The priesthood of all those who believe in Christ. You all know this as a central position in our church called and brought to fruition in Peter's first epistle, the idea of the priesthood of all believers, all of you through Christ's death, has now made you priests in his kingdom. And how do you offer? How do you offer sacrifice? According to the New Testament, we are doing that this morning as the priesthood of all believers. You are offering the sacrifice of praise. The sacrifice of praise to the Holy Lamb of God who has embraced you through his activity upon the cross. Yes, indeed, because of the Holy Spirit, such sons and daughters of Christ have discovered and come to believe by faith that Christ's own offering of Judah and Jerusalem was about to occur according to his repetitive prophetic words is pleasing. What does it say in Malachi? Christ's offering of himself is pleasing unto his heavenly Father. Here's the question. Here's the question going into your week 
of faith and union with Christ? Is Christ's sacrifice overwhelming? His sacrifice overwhelming your heart from sin? From sin. Does Christ's sacrifice mean that much to you? Let's pray. Lord, we need your help. We need your help through the Holy Spirit to live in the sanctification of Christ's holy sacrifice upon the cross. We need that so that we ourselves, O Lord, do not hear and do not endure the judgment that the prophet even speaks concerning Old Testament Israel, Jerusalem, the priests, that we would be only holy in Christ and that thy spirit would be that which leads us on the paths of righteousness for the sake of Christ's name and his glory alone. May that be in abundance to each one of us today who are here. Help us to understand better and better what saving faith means in Christ in terms of our daily walk. In Christ's name, amen.